Hola, mi gente. It's Joshua. As founder and host of the Basel podcast, I want to thank you for listening to this show where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community from La Isla to the diaspora. Let's be honest. Traditional media is not lifting up Puerto Rican stories that reflect the nuance and beauty that exist in our community. And we hope this show plays a little part in changing that. If you want to help us share the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here on Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. Subscribing helps more people find the show and will help you make sure you never miss an episode. Leaving a five-star rating or whatever the highest rating in your app is and showing some love in the comments helps too. You can always give a donation by looking up the Paseo podcast on SaveChicagoMedia.org. All right, that's enough from me. Enjoy the show. Hola, hola, hola. Bienvenidos to the Paseo Podcast. I'm Joshua Smizer de Leon. We're going to be talking about the Young Lords uh, from... Um, the organization's beginnings in Chicago to the impact they've had on the Boricua community, not only here in Chicago, but throughout the world. Uh, but before I introduce our guests uh, for this episode, I want to acknowledge the fact that we are recording this interview uh, on site in person here in Chicago, and I'm joined by members of our team. You can't see them on the camera for people watching on our YouTube channel, but we have Richie Rickenna in the building, Vic Medina, and Joelle Ortiz helping us doing some magic behind the camera lenses. So they're all hard at work with us today. Uh, I really love the chances uh, to, to come out record these interviews in person. It's always a lot of fun. So as I mentioned before, Young Lords is what we're talking about today. Uh, if you're hearing the Young Lords name for the first time, in short, the Young Lords, also known as the Young Lords Organization, uh, was founded on September 23rd, 1968. It started as a Chicago-based street gang and evolved into a civil and human rights organization. The group aimed to fight for neighborhood empowerment and self-determination for Puerto Rico, Latinos, and colonized people. It was most active in the late 60s and 70s. Uh, so today, to help us take a deep dive into Young Lord's history, I'm joined by two special guests. The first is Jose Chacha Jimenez, sitting across from me at the table. He is a political activist. And I'm also joined by Dr. Jacqueline Lazu, an associate professor in the Department of Modern Languages at DePaul University and associate dean of research and graduate studies in DePaul's College of Liberal Arts and Social Sciences. Her forthcoming book is titled Stone Revolutionaries, the Chicago Young Lords and the Origins of a Movement. She is recognized as a leading scholar on the Young Lords organization and has helped establish DePaul's Young Lords Special Collections Archive as a destination for the study of Puerto Rican Chicago, the Rainbow Coalition, the Illinois Black Panther Party, and 1960s and 1970s social justice movements. Cha-Cha and Jackie, super happy to have you on the show. Welcome to the Paseo Podcast. How are you doing today? Uh, I've been working with Jackie, as you said, for many years. We've done, uh, in terms of the Young Lords, a lot of documentation of the history. Uh, as people know, Lincoln Park was the home of the first Puerto Ricans, uh, uh, large Puerto Rican establishment in Chicago, and it was displaced uh, completely. And so uh, that's how the Young Lords began, fighting to uh, give awareness to that, to what was going on, uh, to get more people involved. And it was completely destroyed, and other neighborhoods followed uh, today. Wicker Park, uh, uh, 
West Town, uh, Humble Lake Park, Fuel. Lakeview, all these uh, communities went also uh, by the wrecking uh, ball. We actually created a, a movement to, to fight that. And I think that that's what we're known for. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point. A lot of people do forget how things like gentrification, redlining, other discriminatory practices and policies really system, um, systematically dismantled the imprint of culture the Puerto Rican community made on neighborhoods across Chicago. So it's connected the whole question of uh, self-determination for Puerto Rico because uh, what we saw in Lincoln Park was what we're seeing today uh, beginning to take even more shape in Puerto Rico uh, as a displacement of the Puerto Rican nation. To see an organization like the Young Lords kind of come out of this spirit of coalition building, this this uh, spirit of being a visionary, revolutionary, to really just standing up to power, speaking truth to it and demanding better for people, just demanding that equity, demanding that parity, um, and most of all, uh, independence for Puerto Rico. Uh, but I want to get ahead of myself because if uh, I got to watch myself because I'll go down the rabbit hole with you, Cha-Cha. First, I want to uh, also say, Jackie, thank you for coming, Profesora. Uh, for people listening, you're no stranger to this, but I'm an alum of DePaul. Jackie is one of my favorite professors there. Uh, so she actually helped coordinate all this. So thank you for doing that and thank you for being on the show. Thanks so much, yeah. Joshua. Thanks for having us. I can't think of a better moment in history to, you know, revisit the history of the Young Lords. I'm super happy to be here. I always say, no matter how long I've been working on this, that every time that I get the opportunity to sit down with Cha Cha or any of the other members of the Young Lords, um, it's a history-making moment, right? It's a moment of profound historical value. And I consider this to be um, yet another one of those opportunities where I get to sit down and witness history in the making. So thanks so much for the opportunity. Jackie, let's start with you. And Chacha was touching on this um, a bit earlier, but can you give us a, a sense of who the Young Lords were and why their existence uh, is significant to Puerto Rican history? Well, I mean, really, I think by most accounts, um, and I'm not the first to say this, um, but the Young Lords really were the entryway for Puerto Ricans in the civil rights movement in the U.S., um, and that's not to say that there wasn't activism around issues of Puerto Rico here in the U.S. before, um, but that in many ways they were the voice of the diaspora, right? They really um, allowed us to have a say, to have a place within the discourse of activism in the late 1960s and 1970s. Um, and really represented the voice of the youth at that time. Um, what's remarkable, though, is that here we are over 50 years later still talking about them. Um, and there's a lot of reasons um, why, you know, those of us who study the Young Lords, why we believe that it has been such a profoundly sustainable movement and why it had the impact that it had. Um, but I think that the, the first walk away, the first sort of note to walk away with is that this is a movement that began, began at the local level um, and even more at a very micro local level, right? At the level of the neighborhood or, and even at times at the level of the block, um, a movement of young people addressing issues that were immediately relevant to them, immediately affecting their lives. Um, and from there, these issues um, became profoundly tied to the larger questions of Puerto Ricanness and Puerto Rican identity. Puerto Ricans have always been a people of, of a lot of resistance too, right? That there's always been an answer from Puerto Ricans when it comes to being picked on. Um, and the Young Lords were a very big answer um, to a time period 
um, a context um, and a system that was targeting um, Puerto Ricans in a very specific way um, that was marginalizing the community and really abusing a community that was trying to establish itself here in the diaspora as a consequence of um, marginalization on the island um, and the colonization as it was taking place during that period of time on the island. Um, so the Young Lords really was a response yeah. to that yeah. oppression. Can you expound upon you know, what were some of the discriminatory practices and challenges that Puerto Ricans were facing in 1960s, 1970s Chicago? Probably one of the biggest challenges that the Young Lords responded to directly and immediately was the, you know, the efforts of the urban renewal policies that were being carried out by the um, daily administration at the time and sort of that that effort to create the suburbs within the city. Um, and especially Lincoln Park was one of those targeted communities and um, definitely part of what was known as the master plan, um, the Chicago 21 plan of the administration um, to again create these lakeside communities of wealthy or you know up and coming people um, after a period of white flight from the cities, right? And that um, was happening really at the expense of communities that were trying to also establish themselves and establish a place um, within the city. Um, and for all intents and purposes, you know, Lincoln Park um, was already the home of a social fabric that had been knit by Puerto, by Puerto Ricans and the Puerto Rican diaspora in Chicago. That's what made it so impactful, right? That it wasn't just that you were moving a community of people or that you were moving people from their residences. You were moving an entire kind of social network, right? You were moving businesses, you were moving, you know, um, systems of entertainment, you were moving, you know, all of these different um, aspects of what really created a, one of the first and earliest sort of homes and communities for Puerto Ricans. That's, that's really what made it a significant place, Lincoln Park. And I think, I think what was beautiful about that was that uh, for the first time, Puerto Ricans and other poor people stood up and they, and they fought back and, and they organized. People that had no skills in organizing, we just organized from the grassroots. And I think that that's created a future for, for us to, to begin to fight, uh, to, because it, it's, it, it hasn't gone away, it hasn't dissipated, it's, it remains the same. And so it, it created an avenue for us to to begin to fight back and stand up for our rights. I think that there's another, obviously, there was another major issue that the Young Lords responded to that sometimes gets marginalized within the history, too. And that was, of course, the issue of police brutality, right? That that was something that, you know, was definitely was an impetus for the actions, especially the early actions of the Young Lords, was that a lot of the same things that were that were sort of revisiting now and have, have never quite gone away, but the issues that kind of keep surfacing when it comes to communities and their, um, their negotiations and relations with state agencies, like the police, um, that was an issue then too. That was something that they were trying to address too. Um, obviously, 
it went far beyond that. You know, we're talking about an organization that became in every way a voice for transnational issues or, or for the relevance of these local issues um, at a global scale. And that's what made the movement so profound, right, is that they were able to tie the local to the national, to the transnational. Um, but those are, I think, you know, in many ways, those, that was the beginning. Let, let's talk a little bit more about that, Chacha, then. Um I would love to hear more, like take us, take us in the time machine to that time when the Young Lords were founded. You know, you mentioned, you know, it was a community effort, you know, didn't all just rest on the shoulders of one individual person, but talk a little bit about the founding. How did that come to be? So I saw from my family, you know, when they came in, they were like pioneers. So I saw them coming in uh, through the churches uh, after mass, they would organize the baseball teams, uh, the all, all the games, uh, uh, they would they would organize picnics. Uh, you know, they they take the 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 family on uh, special pic picnics out of the out of the city and that. Uh, but what I saw was a community building, uh, the Puerto Rican parade being founded. Uh, I saw a community being built. And then I saw a community being destroyed uh, when the when the people that once lived there before didn't want us to take their their land. It was our turn, but they didn't want us to have our turn. They 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 wanted to take to take it all for them. And I think that that's when we finally saw saw what we we had to fight. I'm just thinking of the date that the Young Lords was founded. I, I have this date right, yeah. right? September 23rd, 1968. Yes. Right. So that would have been for context on the timeline. If can keep me honest here, was it not two years prior? There was the Division Street riots. Wouldn't that have been 1966? Right. The Division Street riots were before then. Looking at the other part of that date, September 23rd. Is that a connection to El Grito de Lares? Is that okay? It's also my wedding anniversary. <laughs> it was a selected date. It was a selected uh, okay. and uh, it was an unofficial date, so we selected that date. Because that was the uprising in Puerto Rico for the independence of Puerto Rico. So that became the birth date of the Young Lords and of our movement. So were there any moments as you're, as you're in this movement, as you're leading, were there any moments that you feel helped prepare you? You mentioned like seeing your family at church and, you know, kind of picking up different organizing skills from that and that example. But were there any other moments in your life that you felt really helped you prepare to lead the Young Lords? Well, I mean, I was I was in in the in the group. I grew through through the group from the bottom from the bottom up. I didn't uh, I, I didn't uh, come in as a, in the in the leadership role. I never knew anything about management or anything like that. I was in and out of jail most of the time, but I, I because I remained with the group that long, I guess that gave me some kind of authority and and uh, relevance to the group, and I got just chosen as the head of the group. And then I kept going in and out of jail, more uh, police repression. And that kept me in, in the news. And that actually the police made me the leader of the group, basically. I mean, that's the way we, we said it at that time. That helped as well to keep, to keep me in, in place there. But it helped us as well as, as a group. That, that we, fighting back the police, we were fighting City Hall. I mean, we were, we're just a group group of youth. 
on the corner, uh, gangbangers fighting city hall, fighting the police. Uh, and, 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 and not by choice, it was their choice. And the, and the community saw that. And, but the community saw us also, also as fighters for them, and which was in a different way that they used to see us. So now we're standing up for the Puerto Rican communities that they can truly see them being evicted. They can truly see the prejudice that existed at that time of them, of us as a community being hated by, by white, the white community and, and being kicked out, being, you know, they wanted us out just for being Puerto Ricans. On that same vein of thought, can you share a little bit about that shift, how the conversations went from the Young Lords being identified as a street gang to all of a sudden becoming this civil and human rights uh, oriented organization? And what was that conversation like? And how does that conversation even you know, happen? Is it? Let me, let's put it that way. There was several conversations because let me give you an example. Uh, so I come home to my house and, and uh, I think somebody's beating up by my sister. So I, I join in. Later on, I find out it wasn't my sister. I was halfway drunk. But, 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 I, but I found that out later, of course, after we went to jail, after they put in jail. But I, at that moment, I thought it was happening. So I, I joined in. Then my mother joined in to try to get me away from that. And uh, then the neighborhood joined in. And, it, you know, there was conflict in the neighborhood between the Latinos and other community uh, people that were living before us there. Uh, so that kind of, that's how we got into Lincoln Park. And then we were there for years. So then we began to fight each other after that, uh, after we were there for years instead of growing. But we couldn't grow because they also were, we were being evicted at the same time. See, we didn't get a chance to grow uh, as a community where we could have fought each other and corrected each other's wrongs. Uh, we were being split apart from because we were by the lake and near downtown. So it was, we were in prime real estate and, and they wanted their, that land. And so we happened to be in the midst of it. And, and that, that whole process created conflict within our youth. And our youth began to fight in gangs and all the other things that go with that. And it was a period of time in this country where people were awakening to different things, injustices that were taking place. And we were part of that. So then to like start building those connections and that unified front, I mean, were y'all like knocking on people's doors, ho- having like community meetings? Yeah. It started out with people getting arrested, going to jail. Uh, like myself, I was going to jail and then, then people knocking on doors to get bond money and, and that. Uh, I mean, you know, the bond money, I didn't have $80,000 and you know when. I didn't have that when I worked, you know. So, so they, they, uh, it started like that of, of learning how to do that. Of learning how to raise money, learning how to act in different ways than we used to act. Uh, of just hanging out on the corner. Now we're raising money for bond. Now we're organizing special events. Uh, we're, we're doing publicity. Uh, we're working on a newspaper to, to, to let people know about, uh, What's going on? We're going on TV programs, you know. So all this was taking place. We're we're learning a whole new way of life, and and we're putting our own agenda together for the first time. And, and I think that that's what made us forceful. 
did stepping down from leadership ever cross your mind as you're facing all these challenges? Like, did you ever feel like, man, I'm, I'm kind of I feel like I'm way over my head. Like I got, I got to like focus like on other things. This is like, this is taking a lot for me. I, I think that's all I want. I think that's what I wanted all along, but I could, it wasn't a, my choice. I think from the very beginning, we didn't want the leadership role. We didn't want to be in, in, in the forefront of anything. For sure, me knowing that if you're in the forefront, they're going to keep arresting you. Right? Yeah. So I, I didn't want that. I don't think we had that choice, that luxury. Uh, I, well, I really appreciate that context. Jackie, I'm going to throw it at you. Um, so hearing from Cha Cha, uh, the, what you know of the Young Lord's roots in Chicago, I personally feel the more I learn about the history of the Young Lords, the more I feel like uh, the story of the organization is told through a very New York, New Yorkian lens. Um, do you feel like Chicago gets enough attention or credit when it comes to uh, retelling the Young Lords story and lifting up that memory? Or do you feel the story of the Young Lords kind of has uh, is kind of mainly sitting with New York City's Puerto Rican population? 20 years ago, when I came across this, the roots of this movement and really started to understand what the movement was about and in the context in which it or from which it emerged, um, I thought that there definitely needed to be more work done in terms of understanding the context and understanding the history um, that allowed for a movement like this to 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 emerge. Um, I think that things are getting better, though. I think that's my conclusion is that things are definitely getting better, that people are recognizing and sort of starting out at least the narrative by talking about the Chicago roots. But I think that there is a lot of work to be done to understand that context. Um, you know, obviously hearing from Cha-Cha now and, and hearing him especially t spend so much time talking about the period of time before that moment that people refer to as the sort of political awakening, the period of time as a gang, that period of time is really critical to understanding why it is that we're still talking about the Young Lords. The sustainability of this movement is really rooted in many ways in that history prior to September 23rd, 1968. Um, you know, it has to do with the, with the history of Las Hachas Viejas, of those, of that it, my, that community of migrants that came, the communities that they established, the young people that responded also with their own organizing um, on the streets as clubs or gangs. Um, the context of Chicago, Chicago being a city of gangs, if you will, where things are done that way, um, where gangs themselves are politicized one way or another, a city of gangs and gangsters that were all political, whether they were on the right side of politics or not. And so in, in, for all intents and purposes, in many ways, the only way to respond was to organize yourself in the same way, right? And in a very complex way. So I think that we're doing ourselves a disservice by not focusing on that period of time before you know, September 23rd, 1968, and understanding all of the nuances, the good, the bad, and the ugly, um, that's really critical. And that is tied to, to Chicago history. Um, and of course, you know, um, even beyond that, even after that, right, after that short period of time that people, um, you know, tend to really gravitate to when they talk about the history of the Young Lords, um, 
that's not all of it. That's not the whole story. There's stuff, there's lots that was done after and has been done since then that allows us to still talk about the Young Lords as this, you know, profoundly impactful movement that we still look to um, as a model of sort of radical activism and organizing. I think, unfortunately, in the Puerto Rican community, the question of unity comes up a lot. And I think a lot of times we uh, will argue with one another to the point where we're not really getting anything done. Um, like, I mean, I don't want to like get into a bunch of examples, but it's almost like um, the movie Highlander. It's like there can only be one Puerto Rican community or like one Puerto Rican organization doing something. That's the you thing. Know? I, I, like, history is like that. You yeah. know, people want to digest it in very yeah. like narrow or very small co compartments and, yeah. and pieces. And the reality is that no, there is a lot of complexity in history. Um, and you know, I think when it comes, it, it, there's also just this race to the truth, mm -hmm. which I think is very unfortunate because the truth, I, I always say the truth is somewhere in the middle. You're going to hear history is something that you get to by collecting as much information as possible. And somewhere in the middle of all that, those intersections, that's where you're going to find some kind of truth. And it's an it's a truth. It's not the truth. And so, you know, I am not in the business of eliminating any possibility when it comes to history. I think that the history of, of the New York Young Lords is really important, right? Because, you know, th they had an access to the media that was um, important to the, the preserving the history of the larger organization. Um, had that not happened, I don't know, maybe we, we wouldn't be talking about the Young Lords as much, right? That's possible. Sure. But sir, I'll tell you this much, in Chicago, there's always been a conversation about the Young Lords. There's always been an understanding of the role that they've played. If you take the time to speak to individuals and to, to talk to people who may not have been, um, you know, as prepared to talk about this at a, you know, ac at a academic or at a, you know, um, sort of, you know, at the level of the of the media. Um, but you talk to people, you talk to organizers, you talk to community folks, and they can tell you about how it is that the Young Lords became the movement that they became. On that same topic, um, we were talking a little bit before the episode aired about the 10 point program, 10 point plan from the, that the Young Lords put together. Um, when I Google this, I also see 13 point program. What am I missing? Well, you're missing, you're missing. I'll let Chacha answer this one. Yeah. <laughs> you're missing a, a group of good people, uh, people, that, good hearted people. They wanted to create a branch. They wanted to branch away from Chicago. And that's fine. Everyone, you know, in any movement splits apart. There's no, nothing wrong with that. But if we don't want to miss, what you're also missing is that this group never split their ideas. The ideas were the, were the same. And so that's what we need to focus on. And so when we look at 10 points versus 13 point, that's irrelevant. You know, uh, let's look at self-determination for Puerto Rico. And let's look at uh, uplifting the Puerto Rican community and uplifting poor people and poor people's rights. That's the mission of the Young Lords. That has always been the mission of the Young Lords. And that's the, and, and that's, the, that's, both, right? that's the base for these points. Yeah. So that's what we need to focus on is the mission and not the points. I feel like, you know, ever since I've been listening to, you know, the members, the, certainly the original members of the, of the organization, you know, they, they've talked about 
platforms. At some point, we talked about three-point platforms, but they, that has never been the focus of the action, right? The action was based on a mission, right? And the mission really was, you know, the self-determination of Puerto Rico, the circumstances affecting people at a local level in Chicago, and all of those points, all of those actions were um, very recognizably related to much larger questions of oppression of poor people all around the world. And this is why when you look at their work, when you look at the Young Lords newspapers, when you look at the propaganda, when you hear the stories of people who were involved at the time, you're going to hear very natural connections between the issues that we were dealing with here in Chicago at the time and the larger issues that were at play. Um, and I think something that we've, that, that we also have to, kind of keep in mind is and 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 what has made this movement so so impactful from the very beginning was that people really weren't paying attention to Puerto Ricans at the time in Chicago. Um, even politicians themselves, they were so wrapped up in sort of the anti-black sentiments and actions and you know the the efforts to keep the city so profoundly segregated that they really weren't paying attention to what was happening amongst Puerto Ricans. And remember that we were, ta we're talking about a people who were coming from a, a context, right? We're coming from an island where there was deep political repression, deep political repression. So to be able to come here, and not that this was a safer place to talk politics, but certainly it was a place where we could at least fly our flag freely. And so in, in many ways, like the power of the young lords to be able to take on the agenda of Puerto Rican self-determination is can't, it, it can't be overemphasized. Yeah. It really can't be because that was actually just such an important part of the impetus and the will to organize. Right. It was actually the ability to try to do so under new circumstances, not better circumstances, because remember, of course, we had the FBI, we had COINTELPRO, right, actively functioning both here and on the island, right? So we're still talking about, a, you know, a realization from the perspective of the state, from the position of the state that they had to repress both yeah. <laughs> people on both sides of El Chalco, right? And and got to it very quickly, um, but they had to adjust, right? They had to adjust to a new circumstances, new circumstance. And certainly, you know, we, we talked about the Division Street uprisings and how critical that was, because again, no one was paying attention to this community that was feeling the effects, right, of the of the of the oppression of, and of the suppression of their communities um, and the marginalization of their communities, um, but they also sort of slept on the reality that Puerto Ricans were, have always been prepared to resist from the very beginning. There's always been repression, but there's also always been resistance. Looking at the '60s and '70s, you have the Black Panther chapter here. You have people like Fred Hampton, Fred Hampton making moves. Rainbow Coalition, Young Lords being a part of that movement. I mean, can you talk about what were those relationships like? We got we were in contact with Oakland, uh, California, uh, and we uh, had, were in contact with Denver, Colorado, with uh, Corky Gonzalez and his movement there of Chicanos and that. And we went to a, a youth convention there in 1968 uh, for the first time. And, and so with the contact with Oakland and Corky, we kind of expanded and, and, and we needed, that's when we began the Young Lords by dressing up with our berets and, and, and uniform. And we went nationwide, you know, and in a week or two, we were nationwide. So also, um, 
kind of going back to this question of the Black Panther Party, um, I know that a lot of people saw recently Judas and the Black Messiah. So the movie does show or at least attempt to depict attempts to depict the efforts of Fred Hampton and the Illinois Black Panthers um, to organize gangs, street gangs in Chicago, and really try to form a, a type of solidarity movement with gangs for all the reasons that we've already talked about, right? That the nature of the gangs in Chicago was unique. And, you know, being the, or the type of organizer that Fred Hampton was, he saw the potential. He saw that these were capacities that could be brought together and be a force, right? In, in solidarity. Um, and it sort of fast forwards very quickly. You see a scene, you see maybe one scene where, you know, members of the Rainbow Coalition are present and there's a person who plays Cha-Cha who shows up sort of in the background. But we, what we don't see, of course, is the history that led sort of the, the circumstances that led to this coalition actually finally coming together. Um, and, you know, amongst those was, of course, actions that the young lords were already taking, right? Even while they were still sort of in this in-between phase of gang political organization, against, again, they existed as both, right? They were both a gang and a political organization. And they were doing things. They were, you know, they were, they were protesting. They were marching. And it was during one of these actions that um, they've got the attention of the Illinois Black Panther Party and Fred Hampton approaches you. Yeah, Do I have can, that right? Yeah. Can you share more on that, Cha-Cha? I think that history is kind of not told correctly in the movie. Not, not mm -hmm. You told it correctly the way it was, but, but in the movie it's told a little bit incorrectly because we were working with the gangs already because we were part of the gangs. And, and Fred Hampton met us after we had occupied the Chicago Avenue police station. What I mean by that is we went to a police community workshop meeting and we basically took over the meeting, you know, uh, and, and, and this was on the second floor of the Chicago Avenue police station. And so the police couldn't move out. Nobody could move out until we said our piece. So that's what I meant by that. Uh, but, uh, and then we left and nobody was arrested. And then the next day followed with other similar actions in, in other, in other meetings. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so, so the young lords became a target of the police. Mm -hmm. think direct, we were already a target, but we became even a more direct target of, of the police because it was they who we were, we were focusing on at the time. And that got the attention of Fred Hampton. And right? that got the attention of Fred Hampton. What a beautiful example to show people from different races, ethnicities, backgrounds coming together. It was more of a uh, more rooted. The, the relationships were more rooted in class um, as opposed to letting racial race divide. What a world we could live in if that's the mentality people had today. Right. Um, so, Jackie, did you want to add something to no, that? No, I mean, okay. just exactly what you're saying, that we also have to recognize that, you know, there is a long history of, um, there's a long history of, you know, counterintelligence tactics very much geared at um, these types of solidarity movements, sort of time and again, you think about the land grants movement in the in the Southwest, and you think about obviously, you know, the the Rainbow Coalition and so many other movements were targeted precisely around the time where these solidarity movements were formed. Like solidarity, 
strategic solidarity has always been an enormous threat to state structures. And I think that there has to be an awareness of that. Like you said, if we can just continue to recognize the power of working together, working through differences and with differences, we don't have to pretend like they don't exist. That wasn't consistent with the message of the young lords. The young lords were powerful because they recognized that we had to have we had we had to have an anti-racist agenda. We had to have a type of racial consciousness. We had to understand that um, in many ways precursors to the conversations that we're having now, but definitely way ahead of their time, right? That was that was a big part of the power behind its sustainability too. You know, the, the Young Lords, you know, were embedded in a context of, of, of other political organizations that were really important, too, and, and working collaboratively with that with them. So when we talk about solidarity with with the Young Lords, it's not just the Rainbow Coalition. It's other community organizations that were really critical to pushing forward the, the, the actions of the Young Lords, working working together, reinforcing each other and really trying to make a difference. I think a lot of times that's something that gets lost in local history too, is that we look at, you know, we look at all of the different um, organizations that were emerging at the time, either as a result of the Division Street uprising or just things that were going on in the city, right? That as the community began to really organize. And yes, there were factions, right? But they were they were coexisting, they were collaborating, they were in conversations <laughs> and their histories are profoundly tied. And so studying the Young Lords is studying the history of organizations in general in Chicago during that time and beyond. You know, what I remember of that time, that same period, besides the movie, I, I uh, Fred Hampton was the main speaker out there at, at, at all times, at all rallies, and he brought us in there to speak. So he would bring in me and and preacher men from the Patriots to speak uh, because he was trying to create that broad-based coalition and he wanted to create different leaders within, you know, people that could speak within each community uh, and not just him speaking in terms of the black community. He went to the black community and built uh, speakers within that, his, his own community. He was a great orator. I, I, I could never be that close of an orator as wow. Fred Hampton. I mean, as someone that got to see him, mm-hmm. oh no, he's a great orator. I mean, you, you, he would stun you. I mean, when he spoke, when he spoke, you, you listened uh, intently, you know. You and then, and not necessarily clamping and jumping around. You listen. Yeah. I agree with everything he said. Uh, can I yeah. say a little something please. about the movie? Yeah, please. No, I, <laughs> only because I, I know can what, tell Jackie you're ready. No, Go no, ahead. well, <laughs> only because you know I've I've worked I've worked with their production team mm-hmm. to do a couple mm-hmm. of you know um, sort of exercises around a curriculum, which I, I thought was fantastic. And I understand right. that the what the objective of the movie was. I um, I think that there's an opportunity though to talk about that profound moment, right? That definitely wasn't in the agenda of this film, um, and because that because of what we said, right? That that collaboration that that moment of solidarity was what really, I mean, that that really distinguishes Chicago within this, the history of, of radical movements. Like it was that collaboration, even if it was for a moment in time, was much more than 
that moment. It, it became an idea, right? It became a massive idea that has transcended the period of time during which it actually existed, right? That's why we talk about the Rainbow Coalition the way that we do, because it was a concept, you know, it was a philosophy that we were able to kind of bring with us from that moment in time. Um, and I would say in terms of the representation of Cha-Cha, um, I thought, well, obviously it was very brief. Um, I think there was about one line. And like you said, the person who spoke actually not not to shame him in any way did a great job with you know big big shoes to fill but I did notice that he sort of spoke with an accent which I thought was was unfortunate right because it's it erases the history of this movement in that or an important part of the history of this movement um in that this is a movement of diaspora Puerto Ricans. These were kids that were raised in Chicago. And, you know, if we had an accent, it was an, if we have an accent, it's an accent that is a product of us being here as maybe bilingual speakers, as, you know, or, or, but, but definitely English being, being the language of comfort for most of us. And so that's not necessarily the accent that would, that should be emerging, you know, from, from a figure like this. Um, it, it doesn't allow us to articulate the power of this movement, which was that it was a, it was a movement that was and continues to be so important um, that cannot be lost in telling the history of the young lords that it really was, you know, it was the diaspora. It was in the diaspora. No, I think that's a, I think that's a great point. I mean, that's a perfect segue to what I was going to ask both of you. You know, is there anything that you feel, you know, we haven't touched on? The gang, there is no gang except the young lords in the United States that organize as a full gang. They completely change themselves as a full gang. That's important to, to note. There are individuals, many individuals of different gangs that have changed themselves, but there's no complete gang, like the Young Lords. That was the first group. Uh, and usually gangs are not politicized in that way. Usually they're anti that. They're anti the, the socialist movements and all that. Uh, and we were like the first group to stand up with with them and that's why they looked up to us because they uh, otherwise they would have been against us too but they looked they looked up i remember i can see it in their faces when we first uh were, were talking about politics you know in front of them i can see it in people's faces the left this is the left uh where they, they where they responded you know in amazement that that, that we were talking about them for them, and I was and I was happy because I, I you know, I I I, I believed in them, <laughs> so I can see it in their faces that they were happy, they were proud. Jackie, what about you? Is yeah, there anything? Well, I mean, you're going to give me a chance to actually plug, um, you know, the the book project that you didn't mention, which was that. Oh, I have that question ready for you. <laughs> the, you know, my monograph is going to be preceded by a book that we've been working on together, um, with the Young Lords, um, that I've been working on with the Young Lords, based most framed around the 50th anniversary event that we had at the Paul, um, in 2019. Um, very much a conversation with all the different sort of players, right? All the different stakeholders that we've talked about today. 
today and 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 beyond that. Um, and I think that one of the things that will be revealed in both of these projects are precisely those moments that are so important that have sort of been left out of the popular narrative. We've talked about some of them. It's absolutely, like I said, critical to understand those years before May 20, before September 23rd, 1968. Um, you know, the the evolution of the gang, the context with you know with within which the 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 gang emerged, um, even what preceded them, the lives of their parents and and the community that they helped set up, um, the story of Lincoln Park. Um, but I also think that there's um, there's more that has to be told. Um, like I said, things things that followed, right? The history that followed um, those critical years that people tend to tend to um, associate with the movement. Um, Cha-Cha's aldermanic campaign, um, the Lincoln Park camp, the years that the organization went underground, um, approaching DePaul University and building the archives and all of the work that we've done since then to try to keep this legacy alive and this history alive for people. All of that contributes to us, again, still being able to talk about the Young Lords today because it has been consistent. I mean, one thing that I never stopped hearing in the years that we've been working together is Chacha saying, you know, I wasn't a young lord. It's not that I was a young lord. It's that I am a young lord, that we are the young lords. It's never stopped existing, right? And so, you know, now when we have the new era young lords and young people really building off of that legacy, it's really important for them to understand that there has never been an ending from the perspective of the Chicago young lords. There was never... In, it was never dissolved. I think that, you know, if you take it from the perspective of COINTELPRO, or you take it from the perspective of the sort of dominant narratives, there was an ending to this movement. But if you've been in Chicago and you followed the work that Chacha, that Omar Lopez, that Tony Baez, that David Rivera, that Sal Del Rivero, and all these other people who were so critical from the very beginning to the movement, the stuff that they continue to do, then you know that the movement is still alive. The impact that they've had, um, has, has, it never ceases. It, we've never ceased to be able to benefit from, from that in the city of Chicago. And then finally, I'll say that one, you know, another sort of understated, um, part of the history of the Young Lords in Chicago, um, unfortunately has really been the role of women. Um, in the movement, um, again, because it hasn't sort of been anchored to sort the feminist discourse and discourses that we've been able to, you know, benefit from hearing, you know, the, the New York narrative um, through that lens in many ways and, and, and really sort of centering um, that positionality. We've sort of lost sight of how it was that, you know, working class women um, you know, women sort of with boots on the ground were able to actually sustain this movement as the majority many times, right? Leader, the leadership of people like Angie Adorno, right? So that those roles have been really sort of neglected in telling the story and certainly not from the young lords themselves. They tell it. I think it's just well, they about... Had, they, had, they had their own group. They, they, right. I, it's not, it doesn't sound like a political name, it was called the Young Lord Deaths, but it was there. There was always a group of women that had their own group all the time. They had organizations like and, Mothers and Others. And Mothers and Others. So, Professora, you uh, beat me to my other two questions that I was going to ask you, but it was nice. It was a good tease because you mentioned the archives at DePaul. 
I know we mentioned at the top as well. I want you to share a bit more on what that is, the work that you've put into that. And I'd also like you to talk about what should we expect on your book? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, first of all, in the, you know, Chacha mentioned this at the beginning. I walked into, it was 2001 when I, wa- when I came to DePaul and I walked into this history. I was a fortunate, you know, um, witness to work that was already being done. I think it was in the early 90s that the Young Lords, that members of the Young Lords approached DePaul University um, shortly after um, coming out of being underground um, as an organization in in Michigan, that the Young Lords, Chacha, um, Carlos Flores, who's a photographer for the movement, David Hernandez, who's a poet and, you know, affiliated um, with the with the organization to Omar Lopez. Um, Sal was there, too. Um, they approached DePaul back in the early 90s, Tony Baez, um, to write a book right about the Young Lords. That's what they wanted. Um, and at that point in time, they were directed to the Center for Latino Research um, and the folks there who um, sort of redirected the efforts to actually collecting the history of the organization, um, carrying out um, oral history. And that's what we did, right? We collected the histories. We carried out oral history projects. Um, when I came on board, um, I came in as someone who had um, a bit of a hobby, if you will, because it never I can't call it anything beyond that. Um, it, it's a passion. But I was also really involved in theater at the time. And so as we were collecting the history, I decided that I wanted or I was encouraged to actually write a play about the Young Lords, which I did at that time. And it was produced um, and it helped us to actually put the archives to use. And I guess that's what I wanted to highlight is that this is the the archival project has been a living project. We understood that we needed to collect and work with it at the same time. And so, you know, we've written articles. I've, you know, we did plays. We've interacted with them. And, um, and you know, we really did see all of these as an, as an opportunity to continue to build the archives. And that's what's remarkable. The Young Lords actually archive their own stories. I think that's what's fortunate is that we don't have to rely on hearsay. They had the foresight at that time to start collecting stories, especially Chacha. There are so many monographs and Grand Valley as well. Grand Valley is a different uh, thing in Michigan. They have, because I was over there, so we we did about 80 interviews. Yeah. We we traveled back and forth, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's an effort that, you know, Chacha took on. So this type of work is being done um, in places where the young, the young lords had a significant impact. And they've done it from the beginning, time. right? Yeah. It was about Chicago, but in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Because New York had done some, some of their own stuff, but it was just a few people. Now, the one in Chicago... Is, is this the biggest one? This is the biggest archive, Jackie, I'm assuming? Or, I mean, I only mean, because, yes. I mean, the, the oral imagine, histories but, that were collected at Grand Valley State yeah. University are remarkable. And they're really comprehensive. Like, you, Chacha really did, you really did take the time to think about all the different, all the different, yeah, all the different intersections. Like, honestly, you can't do this work without visiting them. I think that the 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 size of the, the size of the collection at the Paul is significant because it contains more than just, you know, the oral histories yeah. as significant amount of artifacts and it's still growing. You know, we had Angie has donated her, her papers to the, to the young Lords archives for, you know, fairly recent, her family donated the, the papers to the recently. And 
And other people continue to bring things in. So it's a growing collection and um, really our most visited archive um, at the Richardson Library um, at this point in time. Um, and also very much the source of, you know, student investigations and research. We get scholars from all over the country really to, to studying the, you know, the history through those archives. Um, we have, you know, professors taking students on tours of campus um, and really that the archives have 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 really provided um really the 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 sustenance and for the arguments right for us to be able to continue to fight to collect the history and to mark the history of the young lords in Lincoln Park because along with the community itself there was also an attempt to really erase the history and so what we're doing here is reparative work we're doing reparative history work um it's like it's boots on the ground here too doing this type of work to be able to make sure that it doesn't get erased either from the Lincoln Park history or even from our own campus history, right? That's that's important. We we left our mark there, right, as a community, and that's important. Um, I think it's attractive and important for students coming in to know that they have this treasure there that they can take advantage of and find themselves in. Yeah, I, I do think it's, it's a real uh, disservice to the Young Lord's memory that there is no type of plaque or statue or any type of <laughs> memorialization well, funny that you should mention oh, that, that because we're we're oh. working on that we're <laughs> really proud um we're really proud of i think our recent efforts it's actually part of our agenda right now um as a team to propose a historical marker um to be put in the building that was um Occupied at that point, it was actually the administration building of the McCormick Theological Seminary. Now it's actually the School of Music at DePaul. But that building is the site of many community tours. People stop there um, and rely heavily just on retelling the history. But to your point, um, I think, you know, our history needs memorialization too. We need our statues, we need our places to go to, we need our markers. Um, we belong. This is this belongs to American history, too. This is U.S. history. And so it's important that we recognize that we've lost so many of the places and, and so many of the historical places, you know, whether it's the People's Church, all of that is gone. Those buildings were demolished. Um, this is kind of our last building is this is is what used to be the stone building of the McCormick Seminary. And so, yeah, we're working we're working on that. We have a new president and he's really uh, he, he's really sympathetic and 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 is um, seems very supportive of the idea. And so we're hoping to see that come to fruition very soon. People want to learn more about the Young Lords. Where can they do that? So the archives is one thing that can be accessed. People walking to the John T. Richardson Library at DePa on DePaul's Lincoln Park campus. Definitely. I mean, you could visit the archives. There's a number yeah. of things that have actually been digitized. So I just recommend that people go on there. Um, I I feel like you always have to start with primary resources. This is why this book, this upcoming book is so important. And I hope will be an important resource for people to, to, to begin their research on the Chicago 
Chicago Young Lords specifically, um, because it will be a collection of primary materials and primary voices speaking for themselves first, right? Um, as, as well as the Grand Valley State University archives. I really think that has to be a starting point. And then, of course, there have been many wonderful things written. Yeah, I mean, we didn't we didn't mention them, but, you know, Pat Devine and some of the other organizations that were here in Lincoln Park at the time, faith-based organizations that were really, you know, they were had, had their own fight against urban renewal and were really obviously very... Very influential. So yes, I mean, the yeah, primary you sources. Extens very extensive. You did your work. You did, you did the work. Um, yeah. As someone that is doing an audio project, I know there's a lot of work that goes into that. So very grateful for Huge the work y'all put into that. Um, so we have the archives. Um, your book's coming out. Book's what, coming do you have out. a date yet? No date. Okay, 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 okay. Not, not committing yet, but okay. Okay, okay. you'll know about it for sure. Okay, well, make sure to share that out. We'll also put a link to the archives in the show notes too if people want to learn more. Absolutely. Um, any other, uh, well, we're on the topic of books though. Is there a Young Lords book that you like out there that you think would be a good I like, like every single point? one of them. Okay. I like every single one of them. So there have been a number of books that have dedicated at least some time to looking at the history of the Chicago Young Lords specifically. Um, they've been, you know, primarily focused on New York. You have Daryl Wenzer, Serrano's book um, on the New York Young Lords. Um, Johanna Fernandez has a has a chapter dedicated to sort of some of the early history of uh, in Chicago as well. Um, but I think um, pretty much our project is going to be the first um, comprehensive study of the exclusively the Chicago movement. Um, but those are all great. And you can go back, you know, even further, the, you know, the sort of iconic book, Palante, is one that we're going to be in conversation with in our book. And, you know, all of those are important resources because I think that they all tell us something um, about the history of this movement. It was then when we began that everything was fractured. And our goal was easy united. And that's what we've set out to do, to unite the people, to unite Puerto Ricans, to unite the community, to unite the young lords, to unite everybody. That's And that should be the same goal today. It always keeps going. It's a process of development. It never stops. It's a continuous process. And our goal is to keep the movement together. By keeping it together, we keep it alive. That's what, that's what we're trying to do. So that's what we'd say. Oh, there's only one young lord. That's it. You're either a young lord or you're not. You know, you're not a young lord from New York or a young lord from Chicago. You're either, either you're a young lord or you're not. I mean, because uh, that's the idea is to keep the group united. The idea is to unite the movement, not to divide it. United we stand, divided we fall, man. <laughs> um, Jackie, what about you? I mean, where do you where do you feel the spirit of the young lords? is today like mm -hmm. what i mean we have all types of movements mm -hmm. yeah well i mean i would I, I would also hesitate to use the word spirit because this was such an action-based movement right and so it's really where do we see the actions of the young lord still manifesting right and i would say pretty much in many different places, right? In a lot of different directions because if we're still talking about you know gentrification right if we're still talking about gentrification 
If we're st- still talking about urban renewal being so solely based on the removal of communities and the you know the elimination of you know of of people from their homes and the displacement of people of, of the, from their homes, we're talking about the legacy of the young lords. We're talking about the tactics and the actions that really brought this movement together. If we're talking about police brutality, <laughs> we're talking about the issues that the young lords were, were trying to bring to to light and trying to to challenge um, in their day. Um, obviously, now we have. I want to, you know, ob- obviously shout out the New Era Young Lords, an organization that you know has emerged in the last couple of years um, with their chairman um, Subidoro from from Connecticut, and then we have. Um, Chairman here in the chapter here in Chicago, um, Paul Morales, who's actually a student at the Paul, um, and he, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I'll give him credit for pointing out exactly, you know, what Chacha just spoke to as well, which is this idea of unity and how important this was to the movement, and also how, you know, how this was something that this organization was able to maintain and commit to despite differences. And I think that that's what's key to understanding um, how you can work on unity and you can work on solidarity through differences, um, because, you know, they did manage to keep this movement together for, you know, now five over five decades um, through challenges, through differences. Um, And again, I argue that that has absolutely everything to do with the fact that they grew up together. They were in the same neighborhood. They understood what the challenges were and they were committed to working through those differences, um, you know, because the issues were so big, because they were, you know, universal and they were affecting their families. So um, more than the spirit, I would say the actions continue. And there are many wonderful organizations committed to the to these things. And I think that the walk away, the message and the lesson absolutely has to be, though, is to remember, you know, who the enemy is. Right. Not to forget and not to lose sight of what what the action is, what it is that we're aiming to do and who it is that we're hoping to challenge. And, you know, what you know, what those systems are that we should be actively um, challenging and in, 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 in that solidarity. Right. And in, in, in a way that doesn't allow us to sort of fall so quickly and so deeply into the into the things that divide us. And so, you know, let's get, let's move past the rhetoric. Let's move past the spirit and ideology. And if you will, and remember what, that this was an action based movement. Uh, Well, I'm really appreciative of the time you both have given me, uh, given us uh, to have what I think is probably um, a topic that we don't discuss, discuss enough around the table. Um, as Puerto Ricans. Uh, so I really appreciate the time. I do want to ask one lighter question, but it is also a controversial question and can create schisms in the Puerto Rican community. I feel like I'm hyping up this question way too much. Um, this is a question that a lot of our guests like to get asked. Uh, Puerto Rican food in Chicago. What a twist, right? What, what a turn. Um, Puerto Rican food in Chicago, favorite spot. Oh my gosh, we're plugging somebody. You don't have to plug any. It could be a place that's not open now if you don't want, but this can be very controversial. You might make some enemies. So let's see. Cha cha, go easy on you then. Here. Uh, Did you have a favorite place to go to for Puerto Rican food back in the day when you were? In the streets of Chicago? It doesn't have to be open. It does not have to be open. You know, Mario had a a restaurant. I don't know where his restaurant is. 
Mariano, Mariano this is the, you know, because his father was the was the owner of the first uh, grocery store. Ah, right, right, right. Mar Mario Rivera. Uh -huh. yeah, so, okay. Mariano, I think it's called, I think it's called Mariano. I think that's Puerto Rican. I think that's his son's restaurant. Jackie, what about you? Oh, man, I'm going to get in trouble because I have some real clear answers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. I think that's why I asked. Uh, I'm just going to say, like, <laughs> yeah, Nelly's for breakfast, without a doubt, and Brukena for dinner. Yeah. All day, every day. I'll say it. <laughs> <laughs> Unapologetic. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, okay. Well, again, thank you for the time. If people want to uh, keep up with you, uh, Jackie, you know, how can how can people keep up with your work? How can they get in contact with you? Cha Cha, same thing for you. If somebody wanted to reach out, you know, how would they be able to do that? Jackie, let's well, start with of course, you. you know, always at DePaul. That's the easiest place for people to find me, jlazu at depaul.edu. Um, I am no longer a member of the Twitter community, but you can find me on Instagram at jaxlazu, J A X Lazu. And on Facebook too, Jacqueline Lazu. Uh, I think it's through DePaul and, and Grand Valley. Yeah. <laughs> and we work together, you know, we're actively working together, getting these projects done. Yeah, so through me for sure. Yeah. yeah. Jose Chacha Jimenez uh, and Dr. Jacqueline Lazu. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank Thanks so much, Josh. This was great. Thank Thanks you. so much. Hey there. We want to take a moment to thank our partners, the Puerto Rican Cultural Center of Chicago and the Chicago Independent Media Alliance for their support. This show would not be possible without them. And shout out to our amazing podcast team. Learn more about them and the show by visiting our website, paseomedia.org. Enjoy the rest of the show. Special thanks again to Cha Cha, who was the president and chairman of the Young Lords, and to Dr. Lazu, who I think is a premier scholar on the Young Lords. Uh, really, again, just appreciate the time they gave me to really uh, delve deep uh, and explore the history of this iconic organization. There's a few other things I wanted to cover uh, before I sign off today. Uh, the first is I recently was a guest on CityCast. It was a really fun episode to record. We talked about the neighborhoods of Hermosa and Humboldt Park. Uh, we talked about the things to do, places to eat, all that fun stuff, a little bit of the history, especially the Puerto Rican history uh, that makes up uh, those two neighborhoods. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, you can listen to that wherever you stream your podcasts. I'll also drop it in our feed over the holidays so you can listen to it easily there. So I wanted to highlight a few stories that I think should be on your radar if they're not already. Uh, the first is that Congress has reached a deal to keep Puerto Rico's Medicaid program funded. This bill to ensure the program is funded for the next five years has to be approved by this week. Otherwise, more than a million Puerto Ricans stand to lose their benefits. So it's a pretty big deal. If you want to read the full story, just head over to NBC News. The AP reported that the U.S. House passed a bill Thursday that would allow Puerto Rico to hold the first ever binding referendum on whether to become a state or gain some sort of independence. The common thought here is that this is a last ditch effort that stands little chance of passing the Senate. Um, but the bill in the House did pass 233 to 191 in votes with some Republican support. So that's a, definitely a uh, interesting development. Uh, but again, the bill would offer voters in the U.S. territory three options, statehood, independence, or independence with free association. So if you want to read more about that story, check out the uh, AP. 
This last story was also on NBC News. The headline caught my attention. Uh, it was that uh, Alzheimer's researchers have studied genes in Puerto Rican and Latino families. Uh, they found that in Puerto Rico, people have a higher propensity for the disease. And part of the reason could be a genetic variant that these researchers have uncovered. And if you didn't know already, Latinos are 1.5 times more likely than white people to develop Alzheimer's. Researchers are uncovering more information about how genetics play a role and who is at more risk of developing the disease. To give you uh, some more numbers here, uh, looking at the Puerto Rican population in the U.S., 10.7% uh, of the population age 65 and older has Alzheimer's. In Puerto Rico, that number is 12.5. In the U.S., it's the fifth leading cause of death in those over 65, but in Puerto Rico, it ranks fourth in the same age group. Uh, it makes sense why researchers would uh, want to focus on the Puerto Rican population here for this research. Uh, I just hope that uh, whatever uh, path they're taking, it leads to uh, some type of uh, help or outright cure uh, to help uh, those that are suffering from this ailment or may be susceptible or more likely to suffer from this disease in the future. Uh, it's an awful awful disease to experience. Um, as someone with family members who have Alzheimer's, uh, it is not, um, it's a, not an, an easy reality to navigate. Uh, so hopefully this uh, yields some positive results. Switching gears here, our next episode is going to be episode 100, y'all. Uh, and it is so wild to think that we have published that many episodes dedicated to uplifting Puerto Rican stories by, from, and for us. In honor of this milestone, I will have a special announcement to share on our next episode, uh, but I'm going to just tease that, leave that there, and let you wait and simmer on that for a bit. Uh, but it's a pretty big announcement, um, but so grateful to get to this point. Uh, this is episode 99. One more, we're at episode 100. Again, just can't believe uh, a project that started a few years ago has made it to this point. Uh, but very grateful for everybody that we've got a chance to to interview up to this point. It's it's, it's been a, a community effort, so uh, really grateful to be in this spot. Um, all right, that's enough uh, from me. Uh, if you want to reach the show, you can reach out to us at baseopodcast at gmail .com. You can visit our website baseomedia.org. If you have a story, you want to pitch a story, or you want to just put something on our radar, or just send us some good vibes, you can do so there. If you're not following us on social media, you can just follow us at Baseo Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We also have our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Podcast. So subscribe what you need to subscribe to, follow what you need to follow, like what you need to like. Uh, just uh, come along uh, for the ride with us. We really appreciate everybody that's been here since day one. Uh, we always appreciate the love and support, especially when you leave a positive review. Uh, or whatever the highest star rating is on whatever app you're listening to this podcast on doing stuff like that really helps people find the show. So uh, we really appreciate any effort and energy you direct towards that. All right, y'all have a great rest of the day. Have a great rest of the week. Happy holidays. And I'll see you next episode. Cuídate. <laughs>